Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. I'm not at Sundance this year, but I know a few people who are. Over the next week, we'll be posting the live talks that Nicholas Rapold has been hosting at the Kickstarter house in Park City, which cover critical reactions to films, personal histories of the festival, and a director's roundtable. I'll turn things over to Nick now. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. This week we're coming live to you from the Sundance Film Festival in lovely Park City, Utah. I'm staring at a lovely ski slope surrounded by lovely people in a cozy, cozy room in the Kickstarter house. And I'm very happy today because in a way uh, I get to like have a home away from home with critics that are often on our podcast and very happy as well to have a critic who has not been on our podcast. So this is as you might guess, the Critics Podcast, where we go over some films we've seen in the beginning of the festival. It's not going to be comprehensive because we're pretty early in the festival. So, you know, you probably won't hear about some movies that you might be curious about. But uh, yeah, without further ado, I'd like to go around and have each critic introduce themselves. Nick Pinkerton, uh, itinerant critic, and uh, I did the cover story on uh, the most recent film comment, a uh, little palaver with Martin Scorsese. I'm Paula Mejia. Uh, this is my first time on the Film Comment podcast. Thank you for having me. I've written for Film Comment in the past, but I'm here at Sundance freelancing for way too many publications. <laughs> uh, I'm Ashley Clark. Uh, probably on the Film Comment podcast too often. <laughs> We've been meaning to talk to you about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a regular contributor to Film Comment. I also had a palaver with Raoul Peck director of the fantastic I Am Not Your Negro uh, in the new issue of Film Comment, and I'm very glad to be here today. Raul Peck, who I should mention, recently sent an email complimenting us on the podcast you just did. Maybe you already heard about that. Fantastic. So, um, so shot in the arm. All right, well, without further ado, um, I guess the interesting thing about this, about, I don't know, me running this, is that this is my first time at Sundance, so uh, I'm a newbie, a tyro. Uh, and so the problem with that is I don't have the same perspective. That's why I, you know, I'm kind of relying on other people to fill in the blanks here. Um, but I have seen a few films, but, and also have general observations, but I thought I'd hear from our critics present about their just general take so far on it and, and whether, you know, what, how many times you've been here. If, I mean, I'm also busting my cherry, as you know. <laughs> So, likewise, I'm being touched for the first time, the very first time, uh, as, as we speak. Wow, guys, this is my third Sundance. Oh. <laughs> well, the alpine atmosphere is lovely, invigorating. Is. I feel I feel like I'm in a you know German mountain film, <laughs> Dr. Arnold Funk film. My lungs expanding. Film-wise, it's been, as they say, a mixed bag. Mixed bag, yes. Uh, for me. I've been mostly seeing documentaries. Um, I've seen a lot more of the narrative features coming up this week, but most of the buzz that I've been hearing has been about um, a lot of these narrative features. So it's been interesting kind of being on the other side of the coin in that way. So, yeah. Yeah, Paula and I have just rushed here from, from a screening of Mudbound by Dee Rees this morning, which is one of the most talked about films here points to kind of a wider issue about festival coverage. It's a film that contains so much. It's a kind of World War II era story. 
about um, the intersection of a family of sharecroppers and a landowner who comes to live on their land with his family and all the tensions that kind of spark off and those relationships interpersonal and it it goes into a lot of micro and macro detail and it's precisely the kind of film that you would not want to run up a giant hill and then <laughs> sit and try and kind of um, expound upon eloquently I could um, not agree more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still catching my breath. In short, uh, I, I liked it very much. And I think it's a, a leap for, for Dries. I, I enjoyed Pariah very much. I thought Bessie was, was, was a great work of art as well. But this is so expansive and contains so much. that um, I recommend it, in short. Yeah. Well, that, let's, that's let's my equivalent of, a, of a, an Insta tweet, you know. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> Can't well, wait to see what she does next. But it, it's, it's really good. And I look forward to a lot of the conversations that will happen around it, particularly, you know given what's happening in the country right now. I couldn't agree more. Um, I loved Pariah, but I thought that this was so extraordinarily better um, and such a leap for her as a filmmaker. I thought it was incredible. Um, it was complex and profound, and I, f I felt like I was gripping the seat along with everyone else next to me, and we were kind of fighting for space on the armrest to do that. Um, and having those kinds of experiences are really special, I think, at Sundance. So. What's notable for me about the film is it's profoundly empathetic. Mm. Um, so in films that deal with, with race and racism, it's often, from whatever perspective you're looking at, at it from, it's quite easy to draw, no, no pun intended, you know, black and white lines. This film, there's many shades to it, and every character is, feels fully fleshed out, and, and it's very well acted. Actors, I was talking to Nick Pinkerton beforehand about some of the, the casting. When I, when I read down the, uh, the list and saw Kerry Mulligan, Garrett Hedlund, actors I've not necessarily been convinced by before, but they really bring something to it. Mary J. Blige is also in the film and gives a wonderful performance, which is ironic considering she'd promised no more drama. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that should wrap things up. <laughs> and we're done here. <laughs> I can't really follow up that incredible pun. I'm just a little flabbergasted. Um, yeah, I, I thought the the cast was tremendous as well. And I think um, what you said about it being profoundly empathetic is really true. I think that, you know, so often, I, something that I've been thinking about a lot in seeing these documentaries and um, especially having seen Mudbound just now is thinking about um, what we learn uh, from this time in history and how history is usually told from the side of the victors and being able to see people coming from both sides of their different resentments and the kind of past that they lived through, I think was tremendous. And I think if I had one criticism, um, obviously I'm still pondering it and still thinking about it, but I think it was a kind of an over-reliance on, on voiceover, did quite a lot of lifting which almost took away from the, the gifts that Dries has as a visual storyteller. I think there was a kind of a multi-stranded five or six people get to do voiceover narration. Yeah, and I found it was um, needlessly portentous at times. The images and the, the themes carried enough weight without needing to, you know, maybe that's a confidence thing, I don't know, but I didn't feel that there needed to be quite so much voiceover. Ironic, because I ramble on. No, I, I felt the same way. I thought that it, it hit you over the head a little bit. It could have done without the voiceover at all, I think. Um, the acting was so strong, and yeah. everything else was running through it. So Well, there was no divergence between the voiceover and the image. Mm -hmm. I think when voiceover is used, interestingly, it's I think of like Barry Lyndon, Michael Horden, doing that incredible dry voiceover, which really brings something to... It forces you to kind of have a dialogue with the image. With this, it was like a reification of the image. There was nothing in the voiceover that wasn't happening mm. on screen, which 
threw me a little, but a minor criticism overall. I I know I I hear you on on the on the uh, I don't know surfeit of voiceover. I I liked I liked the voiceover because I liked the language of it, especially because one recurring theme for me here is that a lot of the dialogue as written in the films at Sundance is like you'll be trucking along all right for a while and then someone will just you know bust out with a howler of a line it's like i guess you didn't want to just fine-tune that a little you know it's just you know uh, i mean I'll, I'll come up with some examples as, as we get along so in a way it was like oh sure i'd, I'd like to have the literary language here as as, as, a, as you know a little change but it, yeah it, it was optimal. it's based on a novel too and it yeah, does yeah, have a, it's coming from a novel yeah get that infusion um from from there um had any of you read the novel i have not not i me neither we can cut that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just curious. Um, Mr. Pinkerton, you have a... Well, I've, uh, I think I've got a good dozen movies under my belt, some of which, you know, there are bits that I like here and there. As you know, I have uh, a great deal of fondness for Dustin Deppa's uh, Person to Person, but I think the thing that I have the most unreserved enthusiasm about is actually a piece that I encountered in uh, the VR palace, so-called, which looks suspiciously like a tent and not a palace, <laughs> um, which is a piece that takes about five, six minutes to get through if you're just trucking straight through it by a woman called Rachel Rawson, who's a painter and also a sort of new media artist uh, called The Sky is a Gap. And the sort of jumping off point from it is the conclusion of Michelangelo Antonioni's Zabriskie Point, which for those of you who don't know the movie, is this fantastic sort of grand finale where you just see commercial goods exploding in sensuous slow motion. A bookshelf, a uh, loaf of Wonder Bread, uh, so on and so forth. And what uh, she has done with this is you slap on your VR goggles, a novel experience to me, and you're able to explore these uh, landscapes that are in the midst of explosion. But as you move about, the location of your body inside of this chamber determines what direction the explosion is moving in. So it explodes or implodes depending on where you are. Moreover, there are these little pockets of sound buried throughout the area where when you hit them, your body almost acts like a stylus on a record player. So you can almost sort of scratch back and forth. And it was entirely unlike anything that I have encountered before. The thing that it put me most in mind of is a piece that I ran across at uh, the Whitney uh, in their Dreamlands show a couple months ago. Alexander McCall's line describing a cone, I think it is, called where it's just a space that I could have spent an infinitely lengthy amount of time in. And it was also interesting in that it was completely outside of what you know the other pieces that were available in the VR palace which are interesting in their own right, but I don't think necessarily successful as standalone art pieces or narrative art pieces. You can see things sort of being worked out and all of that is very interesting. It's interesting to see this form at the zoetrope stage, uh, to see it emerging from the primordial muck 
it still felt very primordial <laughs> to me a lot of it um to see these sort of issues of how to narrativize an open space how to edit without editing uh using sonic cues so on and so forth all of which is to say the rachel rawson piece is the one thing that i found absolutely you know jaw-dropping i mean what's interesting is that it is that it's you know a new or new medium but it's still taking off a film as its jumping point oh absolutely i mean there's a piece i believe called dear angela which is about a 15 minute narrative piece which is based around a young woman addressing letters to her deceased mother who is a fictional movie star the vernacular of film is very much in use in in these pieces and that's the case with the sky is a gap as well i mean but it also seems to be you know it's free of free of narrative it's doing something that I, I I can't see it working in any other any other context in any other medium, uh, whereas everything else that I've encountered thus far does seem heavily indebted to the sort of toolkit of motion pictures. Yeah, yeah, and aspects of that toolkit. I, I don't want to be the one who's griping here, but maybe that will be my role. Um, <laughs> I mean, that there have been aspects that just sort of recur, like. The use of scores in some of the movies I've been seeing has been uh, just a little uh, self-enamored uh, at, at times. Uh, you know, Did you see Thoroughbred? You read my mind. <laughs> uh, yes, I did, just this morning, in yeah. fact. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was just was just ladling it on. It was like they, they, they bought a whole truck of score, uh, you know, like a pickup truck full of score and didn't want to waste a single grain of it. Couple, uh, couple truckloads of cinematography, too. <laughs> yes. And I, you know, it's it's fairly interesting score, um, uh, although I, in, in a way I felt like it was a movie I could have seen 20 years ago. So know. what's this film about? This Thor is Thoroughbred. Oh, thank you, yes. Thoroughbred, um, directed by Corey Finley. And it's a film uh, about two friends, uh, or grade school friends, and um, one of them is, I guess depressive or dissociative almost and the other is in, in a rich family i guess they're both they're rich. both very they're wealthy. both very wealthy it's set in this like in minorial connecticut, connecticut. Yeah. yeah and at first you know they're sparring circling each other for for a while and and um you know trying like i don't know heathers-esque lines out on each other and then they things turn even darker than they already are and um all throughout there's a lot of music it's these sort of dramatic i don't know what are sort they, of tintinnabulation of yeah. pedal drums and percussion kitchen, section. In, kitchen yeah. implements being rattled around yeah a lot of that just like a percussion section just like set loose or, or i felt more like if you know an orchestra when it's tuning up it's like you just left the mic on for the whole time um and and a lot of it's very calibrated but a lot of it just felt just um, anxious. Whenever there's a lot of score like that, it kind of feels like there's a lack of confidence in the material. Um, uh, and one other particular gripe I have is when you this this kind of hackneyed convention of that about cuts. When you're making a dramatic cut, you have the ramp up to to like the eardrum, you know, piercing thing, and then you have the cut, which takes away from the cut. You know, it's like the, that cuts are dramatic. You know, cuts are like a basic building block. So uh, that's just frustrating because it's like an anxiety about something that's so basic to, to how movies are put together. 
I mean, the the movie you could have seen twenty years ago, comment. I I definitely had that same feeling as well. I mean, as rough contemporaries who both sort of lived through the deliciously dark cycle of the middle 1990s. I have a very limited patience for that mode. Yeah, you know, people behaving badly. Uh, so they, Ashley and I shouldn't go see it. <laughs> so in short, drop everything and see this film. Oh, okay. Run like a thoroughbred to thoroughbred. All right, then. <laughs> uh, no, no, but uh, no, seriously, though, it's, it's, it's entertaining. It's very entertaining to watch, and, and they have, you know, a, a whatever sort of deliciously demonic interplay between uh, these, the, the two actresses who are, who are s strong, although I have to say a little one note a bit in terms of the, but the characters are kind of like that. I was actually feeling a bit misty-eyed about Anton Yelchin, mm. who's in it, who plays a, how would you describe him? He's like one of those guys who hangs out in the high school parking lot six years after high school <laughs> and is like selling ditch weed to everybody and playing grab ass with the girls. That's basically what he's doing. Yeah, and then he takes that, and, but he, he, and he just, I don't know, he just fleshes it out so much and takes every little line and that it's just like, I almost want to follow this guy on his sad, sad path. Um, that that's happened every time he's there I, you know he's supposed to be the kind of he's supposed to be a one joke guy mm -hmm. but he's he, he views it with so much like warmth and just little pauses and everything so that was a you know r.i.p uh, moment for me but perhaps we should move on to films that anyone want to jump in with another title well, might be a good time to talk about a film with absolutely no score um which was a film called motherland which is a documentary set in manila in the philippines set in a kind of maternity hospital um and it's a an inc incredible uh, it's directed by ramona diaz a kind of prolific documentary filmmaker um, and i believe it went through many many cuts and m many versions to get it just right and it's a kind of 90 minute observational documentary following what happens on this ward um which includes babies getting lost um actually getting like being mixed up with others babies being lost babies being born it doesn't ladle on on any context. Underlying it all is that this is a intensely Catholic country where birth control is basically non-existent. So that context is underpinning the film. But it's very um, very moving. It really stayed with me. Um, I think it's a real testament to the access, the trust that the, that the filmmaker was able to to build up with with her subjects. I don't really like that word, but but with, with the people she focuses on. And, and, and narratives come out of it, but they feel very organic, not forced in the reality TV model, where you look at someone and you think, oh, that's, you know, the, the music swells and that's who we're going to follow. I found it very moving and very understated. So I, I wasn't really going to talk about it, but when you talked about the... Um, Tintinabulation, did you say? Tintinabulation. What a word. <laughs> your, your kettle drums had my, my ears ringing. My and, um, tragic kettle drums. The tragic kettle drums. Uh, and I thought that the minimalism of this film was remarkable uh, and it was it was nice to be able to take some time to to think about the film before before talking about it you made me want to see it thanks and then paula you saw whose streets if i'm right that's yes, a, a I did. very notable um, documentary so whose streets is a documentary about um not so much the shooting of michael brown in ferguson missouri but basically what happened after that and they follow a couple of people who are very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, people who have been living in Ferguson for years, people who lived um, on the same street as Michael Brown where he was shot. And 
I had a pretty visceral reaction to this film. I mean, two years ago when that happened, I was a national reporter sitting in a newsroom scrambling with everyone trying to figure out how to cover this. And it, it was it was heavy, um, but I think it was important. And I think to see a documentary that's been, it's still very prescient and it's been going on in real time. Um, it's not something that has been removed from history for a while. I think that people are still processing a lot of that, especially given the political climate right now. Uh, so it was pretty incredible. I'm really keen to see it. Could you talk a bit just about the form of it? Like how, how the, this kind of this story is presented in terms of you know how it's framed or does it use talking heads does it uh not so much talking heads um so it's divided into five parts and it's as the movement is sort of ramping up uh, it starts with um, michael brown's shooting but that takes up maybe two minutes of the film it's very brief they don't really dwell on it uh, they dwell on the aftermath of what happened as much as his parents and the people in the town and then moving through when all the reporters come to town and when they focus on the looting of this one store and there's are so many other stories that are going on simultaneously and they focus on a couple of people um, someone who's very heavily involved in community organizing someone who is raising their child to be an activist and she gets arrested in the film and um, seeing the police report and what they cited her for is pretty something else. Um, but I will say my criticism of it is that it is very, it is a little heavy handed on the sides of the act of it. I mean, obviously like that's where the focus was and that's what this documentary is about, but they, they don't interview anyone in law enforcement. They have one interview with Darren Wilson and it's kind of placed in this moment and you're like, Oh, this guy. Like, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and that's how I think the film was meant to be, but I think that it could have benefited from a little bit more. Balance. I think it's a shame when films don't give people the opportunity to, to hang themselves. Um, I'm thinking of Spike Lee doing Four Little Girls, when he, um, which is about the 16th Street bombing in Alabama, mm. and he interviews at length George Wallace, former governor of Alabama, and it's just an incredible thing to, to witness, this guy mm. talking himself into knots and circles, and it gives the film so much weight. Right. To and actually bring in alternate voices. No, for sure. Uh, and not to, I don't mean to switch subjects, but when something really benefits from that balance, I think that it can be very powerful. Like I saw Novitiate. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen that here. So Novitiate is this film that was made by uh, Maggie Betts. And in it, a 17-year-old girl named Kathleen decides to become a nun and excuse me, um, her mother is more of the rebellious one. She's like, what are you doing? You're throwing your life away. I can't believe this. Um, and she goes to join a very strict convent. And so the process that nuns go through before they take their vows, it's very rigorous and very much about self-realizations and um, takes a lot of discipline. And it was pretty fascinating to see because the film, despite the subject matter, it doesn't present it in a positive or a negative light. It's incredibly neutral. And I say this as someone who grew up Catholic and is very much lapsed and I feel I have my own hangups about that. And I came out of it feeling like it was very fair in terms of the representation there. And it really left people 
the ability to make their own decision there. So I was pretty impressed with that. Well, it almost shows a lack of confidence in your polemic thrust when you don't allow some other mm-hmm. you know, representation because, I mean, the example that you give, Spike Lee has full confidence that he can let George Wallace pop off as much as he wants mm-hmm. and it's not going to in any way, shape, or form slacken or slow down the polemical drive of what he's doing. Uh, it's not second-guessing the approach. Rather, it is a complete confidence in the approach that you can let the other side have their say. I think also of uh, Ponte, Ponte Corvo's Battle of Algiers, where you have the wonderful monologue by the uh, sort of chief of the paratroopers, who in the moment that he's speaking, everything that he says is completely justifiable, completely sound from where he's coming from, but it in no way, shape, or form slows down the velocity of the film. It's a sign of confidence in your viewpoint rather than weakness, I think. Which somehow brings me a bit back to to Mudbound, even though it's a fiction feature and we've been talking about documentary, just dramatic way in which it draws parallels but also juxtaposes the stories of the two families. And for me, had one of the most exciting sequences. I'm not even sure if it was successful, but it was exciting because it was pushing things so much. Just the, the montage, I guess there are a series of montages where they're cutting between wildly disparate times and places of, you know, battlefield and, you know, lovemaking. <laughs> I mean, I'm mixing it all together. But, uh, and it's, it's almost like you're, you're watching some update of like a, you know, Griffith intercutting. Um, and I, I, yeah, I loved, I loved kind of seeing the, directorial hand there um the whole movie was just so i don't know gratifyingly a- ambitious and, and and so coherent stylistically as well yeah. despite the, mm-hmm. the 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 various you know places in the world to which it travels some of the some of the sound bridges and match cuts are oh, really yeah. th- like thrilling like like breathtaking yeah. moments from yeah. from a fighter pilot to suddenly you're in a shack somewhere in, in Mississippi. Yeah. Or in the carburetor crazy. when he falls on the ground. Yes. You know? Yeah. And thinking that it's a bullet and it's just a car. Like yeah. I jumped like halfway out of my seat yeah. during yeah. that scene. And it's there's something I'm kind of imagining the film in the hands of another a, a different filmmaker. And and how like Lily Daniels, for example, you know, and how how different a film it would have been, you know, how it, it seems so so restrained yet ambitious. It's hard to Hard to convey that, but it's it's in the stylistic unity of the film, where there's obviously so much explosive and provocative content, thematic material, but yet the way it's marshaled is the sign of such a confident filmmaker. We're talking about confidence, mm. apart from as I mentioned before, the the perhaps overuse of voiceover. Yeah. Otherwise, it it holds together really beautifully. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a sort of film where you would might expect people to talk about it as as an epic, you know, epic canvas or or something, but that just feels false <laughs> when you hold it up to what what you're actually watching. Yeah, because I think that Epic has or implies some kind of sensationalism and there was no sensationalism in Mudbound at all. Yeah. It's a tough movie. Yeah. It's it's graphically violent and it doesn't hold back on racism in action. Mm. Um and it's it's very powerful for that for that honesty and, and rawness. Well, not just that, but how difficult it is to live as a farmer and a sharecropper, no less. Yeah, like, like a really powerful evocation of just hard times for mm. everybody, for the the farmer who's kind of emasculated by his by his father. There was kind of less. There was elements of a monster's ball to it in terms mm. of that father son relationship. Not quite as lurid, um, but but it's it's a very kind of 
compelling portrait of masculinity uh, in crisis, which is a perennial thing. And yeah, it just again, I look forward to thinking more about it. Yeah, and I just also like the time, particular time period of like the 30s and 40s that, that it's that it's in. You know, somehow in between a lot of the you know epics that that often get covered in film, whether it's civil rights or slavery era. Um, it reminded me of Strange Victory too. I don't know if you, if anyone here is. Oh yeah, I yeah. love Strange Victory. In yeah. terms of some of the the, the cross cutting and the, the 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 ambition of it. Yeah, Strange Victory, this great Leo Hurwitz documentary, this real wonderful bummer of a documentary <laughs> of for post war America, where you know I I I forget exactly what his assignment was. But it, it, it probably wasn't to actually chronicle the state of race relations at the time, um, which is basically what he does. And, and um, it's just, yeah, very clear eyed about the fact that the war was won, but, you know, that didn't suddenly fix everything up. And that's vividly portrayed in, in Mudbound as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the black soldier who comes back to America having been a hero abroad. Yeah. And then is back right at the bottom of the ladder when he gets home. And that, that provides the narrative engine for much of the film's mm-hmm. second half. Uh, so where does that bring us then? Did you want to talk about person to person a bit? Oh, person to person. Yes, absolutely. Let's, let's go place to place, person to person. Yeah. So to briefly recap, I suppose, it's composed of how many separate narrative strands? Four, five? Uh, to quote the cartoon character, I forget which, about three or four. (laughs) (laughs) All taking place over the course of a single day in, uh, New York City. Uh, we have Michael Sarah acting as a kind of mentor to a young reporter played by Abby Jacobson as they dig into a murder mystery, which uh, then intersects with goings on at this downtown watch shop, um, which is overseen by Philip Baker Hall. And I don't want to get lost in the various, uh, the Gordian knot of narrative strands. And some of these intersect, uh, some, some of the characters intersect, in fact. In other cases, it's more a matter of a kind of thematic kinship between these different uh, plot lines. It's unusual because I think the last time I was on this podcast, I was talking about intolerance, and uh, I guess this is Dustin's intolerance (laughs) in that you have these... You you just gave the pull quote. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Babylonian section alone is sort of worth the price of admission. An eccentric but sound choice, I think, yeah. And it's a movie that I, I have not entirely had time to digest. It's very, very full let's say the impression that i had going away is that i think it's been a few years since since uh dustin's had a feature and it feels like a movie by somebody who is just getting it all in as though this might be the last shot there are some real uh the the character played by benny cooper smith offers up some a, a personal ethos which i think is very much that of the director. Uh, I should say the film shares its namesake with a short from maybe two and a half years ago starring Benny Cooper Smith playing a somewhat similar character, this uh, sort of record junkie who is, I think, uh, employer proprietor of a rundown record shop, which is a place on Fifth Avenue and Park Slope, which may or may not be there anymore. 
one of the things that's so charming or which I like so much about his his world is that, as I was saying, coming out, he has this enormous fondness for offices and shops and storefronts that look like they're going to go out of business like as soon as the camera stops. Uh, the Philip Baker Hall, like watch shop downtown, the office of this uh, like New York News, I think it's called this this fake tabloid where Michael Sarah's character works. Uh, it's a very particular evocation of a like Manhattan or a New York on the cusp of extinction that he summons up, and that it, that I find just enormously charming. Me too, and I it's it's almost something that put me on guard in like the opening few minutes of it, you know, just because it's filmed and has this very grainy look, and even the credit sequence, you, you know, you have this track. This, do you remember what the title of the song was? I don't. know. Yeah, it was just very much sets mood, and you have these like these long, these kind of long shot, you know, almost like a zoom, you know, um, crap, what's the word for it? The, the lens. Almost like their telephoto lens, like a couple mm. of these shots, you know, it could be a drama, of, you know, New York 70s, you see a garbage truck, you know, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing from a distance, a couple of kids. Well, playing. he's definitely like interested in that continuity. Yeah. Like this is not, this is not, you know, the technocrats New York. This isn't right. a Bloomberg New York. This is like the vestigial New York that has been there and remains, you know, since. I mean, I haven't seen this film, but. That sounds to me less like a continuity and more like a resistance to change. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, I think he just has a genuine affection for these kind of spaces mm. that have this like palpable accreted history where you have, you know, filing cabinets, where you have all kinds of like yellowing, like tabloid news stories pinned up on the wall. There's just a palpable fondness for this, this era of new york that's sort of hanging on by its fingertips and and i also like that the, like the internet appears and it's a villain basically <laughs> <laughs> in this film uh, it's like a key plot point that you know it's it's used for yeah evil and is is used in a person's weakest moment and uh yeah and, and i mean beyond just talking about the world that it conjures up it should be said i think even though I have my quibbles with the movie, he has such a lovely, intimate way with performers where he's a, it has, I think, some very, very touching close-ups used very parsimoniously, but very, very affectingly when they are used. You feel like they're very privileged moments that he gets with, the, you know, and I think every performer gets one of these sort of solos in yeah yeah no i entirely agree i mean the final couple couple of shots are just you almost feel like he's been just cradling it in his hand until that moment to present it to you you know the, mm -hmm. this wonderful without any of this feeling precious or like you know nostalgic like it's you know diving into some oblivion um it's just just very warm you know? but it's also there's an interesting push-pull in it in that it's a movie that's very much a hangout movie in terms of dramatic incident i mean there is a murder mystery in there but it's handled in a pretty offhand fashion so it's a hangout movie about people sort of shooting the shit essentially but it really moves along at a yeah. brisk clip and i'm not entirely certain how to deal with it because as i say like it feels very very full 
like there's almost a urgency to make sure that certain things are said in this one as though the opportunity may not present itself again. Yeah. But I mean, most refreshing is the fact that I did, I did not know where it was going or what it was doing place to place. Whereas with more than a handful of movies I've seen, you're just, you're watching marks getting hit and that's a perfectly valid form of filmmaking, you know, working according to template and working inside a template, but at a uh, showcase for independent filmmaking, I like to see things that are maybe defiant of or completely operating outside of those templates. And this is one of the few instances that I've come across. On that note, I saw a very striking debut last night by uh, a young Korean-American director called Justin Chong. The film's called Gook, um, and it's set in 1992, uh, at precisely the, the moment just before the officers involved in the Rodney King beating. Listen, what's my language about? The officers who beat him up. <laughs> so I just internalizing this ridiculous language that people use. Um, and it's a kind of strange, strange kind of tale of two Korean-American brothers who run their, their father's shoe store. Their father's not, um, not around anymore. There's a, bo a kind of a bond between the, the director. He, he plays one of the brothers and a young black girl who, who's local. And there's some kind of tragedy buried deep in this story that takes a very, very long time, almost too long, to, to kind of be revealed. Not all of it works. I mean, there's a, the, I found the, the young black girl's character quite troublesome. There's aspects of, there's a kind of a real Beast of the Southern Wild, your favorite. Uh, um, it's Nick, my favorite film yeah, of all time. Aspect to her where, where she is, she's, she gives a wonderful performance, but the way that she is, is it, even if I say a child is infantilized, is that, is that a tautology? Do you know what I mean by that? I think, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think not, so. Yeah, she's kind of dancing and, and singing a lot, and it kind of put me on edge straight away. Um, but where it doesn't work is is more than counterbalanced by the energy and commitment that's been put into it. And he he really wants wants to make a statement. At times, the ghosts of films like uh, La Haine, it's shot in black and white, and another one of Nick's favorites. And Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which it quotes kind of explicitly at times, threatened to subsume the director's voice. But ultimately, it is a very personal story. The director's father is in the film and came on stage and did a, a lovely Q&A last night. And it was precisely the kind of thing that you're talking about, that Nick, that I think you want when you come to a festival. I didn't know what was coming next. And even though some of it was, was quite ham-fisted, I did feel like I'd really been through an experience when it was over. So the film's called Goop by Justin Chan, and I, I definitely recommend giving it a look. I had somewhat of a similar experience um, with a documentary I saw uh, called Dolores, and it's about um, Dolores Huerta, who was the partner of Cesar Chavez, and they went on to form the National Farm Workers Alliance. And, you know, going into it, I was asking myself, like, why have I never heard of this person? Like, I read the description of the film, and I went into it, and it blew me away, not just because it it really goes deep into her contributions with that movement, but also how, you know, they helped ban DDT and how that helped kickstart the environmental movement, like her um, kind of friendship with Gloria Steinem and the kind of intersectionality that came out with the feminist movement. But also the part that was just mind blowing to me was towards the end when 
she had sort of a tiff because she gave a speech in which she said that Republicans hate Latinos. And so that angered a lot of people on um, boards of education in Arizona and Texas. And so their reaction was to ban her name from textbooks and ethics classes completely. And I grew up in Texas. And so it kind of came full circle for me that way. So I wasn't expecting for the film to take that turn in such a personal way as well. It's okay. We've got Lion Ted Cruz. So. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to pick on something that, uh, that Ashley was also just, just saying about the Q&A afterwards. I, I don't want to neglect that aspect of Q&A after, after, after Goog. Um, and was there a Q&A after Dolores? Oh, series? I went to a press, press screening. screen. Yeah. So, yeah, no, because that's that. another, you know, valuable aspect of the festival here, that, that energy you have, you know, the appearances of, of people. I don't want to discount that. I think sometimes if I talk about films here, it sounds a little abstract, but. Um, but it is a little fitting that I saw Dolores at the Women's March. So, oh, yeah. Yes. Well, so in lieu of a Q&A, I, I yeah. got to see her marching on the streets, which oh, was wow. pretty awesome. So. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the extra filmic aspect to this festival. <laughs> Definitely. That, that's been special. And I was in the VR Palace during the inauguration, which I, <laughs> and I've, I've often thought about this, like, is this technology being developed because the actual physical world has become so unlivable? <laughs> we, we, we need, need augmented reality We need now. an augmented reality because <laughs> as it exists, it's just disgusting beyond belief. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> Are you are you for or against that? Are you saying it's the comic books of the two thousand teens? Or well, I mean, ideally, I would I would try to keep the world habitable, but <laughs> but if we have to, if in we have lieu to, of that, we can retreat to our matrix pods. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get the feeding tube and the VR goggles and well, drift off into eternity <laughs> with the kettlebells ringing. <laughs> Were, were there Q and A's at the VR at all, or no? uh, there were like with ev <laughs> with every with every the palace with everything that I entered, like seventeen people whose name tags read CEO would descend upon me. <laughs> did they all hand you? shaking my hand. Did they all hand you their business cards? Were they just letting them fly? I mean, eventually, I just turned into a running back. I was just sort of stiff arming <laughs> people. Juking people, just trying to get from place to place. Just trying to stay in your fantasy world. Yes, exactly. Be disturbed. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't really know how to follow that. So, yeah, all I meant to say about, about uh, Q&A was just the mud mudbound one. It's just, you know, feeling the upswell at the end of the screening, is, is the public screening, you know, that's, that's something. But at the same time, it presents something of an ethical quandary as a critic. Yes. Um, particularly if you're seeing a film in its world premiere. I mean, I, Paolo and I had to, to run off straight after the, the Q&A this morning, so I've no idea how it went. Mm. The lady next to me was literally sobbing throughout the film, which, speaking of augmented reality, you know, it was well, that quite That sounds something. just like emotional disturbance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it added to my kind of experience of the film, you know, when you see a film in the audience, you've got no idea how they're gonna. <laughs> yeah. There was someone sitting next to me who kept gasping, like, really dramatically, and so... Yeah. For me, that kind of that made me have a. I apologise for that. Oh, it's it, it was. Um, oh, it's quite alright. But you know, when you um, when you have to have a your own kind of rigorous response, particularly if you're turning around copy, it's filing to an editor very quickly. If there's things you're not quite sure about, the Q and A gives the filmmakers an opportunity to smooth those over. It's like the old quandary of, well, it's not even a quandary. You don't read the press pack if you're a reviewer. Don't read the press pack because if you watched a film and you don't know what happened. 
and you were concentrating. It could be that it was that the narrative was constructed in a very cat-handed way. And if suddenly you consult the press pack with the synopsis, and it makes it look streamlined and sensible, then you know you, you've let yourself down. I think. I think you've really got to try and stick away, stay away from that kind of thing. It's difficult with, with Q and A's at festivals because they're part of the environment, part of the atmosphere. If you're just going as a spectator, it's one thing. But as a critic, I think it's it's important to do the work to keep that mental distance and, and independence and not get swept up in it. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's definitely a, a job job hazard. Or, uh, and I mean, I had that experience with the discovery. It's funny you mentioned that about uh, you know people smoothing things over. You know, was the, this the Robert Redford film? The Robert Redford film, which is a total mess. I mean, I defy anyone to tell me otherwise. Um, <laughs> and just seeing you know worthy actors flailing on screen, and then at the end. Uh, this desperate effort to say it was supposed to be a character study, you know, that sort of thing. We were really about the characters to kind of paper over the fact that they, they had zero handle on how to construct uh, this uh, somewhat elaborate science fiction premise. And it's just, yeah, uh, that was that was just like, it's not, it doesn't, it's not working uh, for, for that particular movie. But I think uh, to speak to Ash's point, when there are people who are on the ground here and when you're expected to file copy and be up at 7 a.m. grinding out hot takes, it that, that model definitely lends itself to, let's say, not being very ruminative about what you've just seen, grabbing at the press kit or pulling... Uh, Immediately hailing something, a masterpiece on Twitter. Yeah. The second you've walked out of the door. Right. I understand it. And I think it, enthusiasm is one thing. I don't want to be like, you know, shut up, temper, temper your enthusiasm, curb it. But sometimes it does, let's say, particularly you, you were talking beforehand about me and Earl and the dying girl. <laughs> and films As that, I usually am. Yeah. You won't <laughs> stop going on about it. He's always calling me up. Ash. <laughs> All hours of the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Um, he, he, uh, it, it does set a remarkable precedent, at, at, you know, at, with festivals like Sundance, where a film like Me and Earl can become this incredibly buzzed about thing. Happened with, with Birth of a Nation, interestingly, too. I mean, that, that was subject to a number of other factors. But, you know, mm -hmm. that, there was a feeding frenzy with distributors last year. By the time the actual release of the film rolled around, it was like people, for, for many other reasons, might I add, so people couldn't get rid of it quick enough. Mm -hmm. And I think it's natural to be enthusiastic about a film, particularly something like Mudbound this morning, which I found quite exhilarating. You know, I mm. did feel that when you're a critic and you're in a position of perhaps influencing the dialogue, yeah, right, um, you, you know, you, you do have to be careful, I think, about how you do that. Well, when you're, I mean, when you're on the ground in a festival, the temptation, and I think there's certainly outside pressure being brought to bear, the temptation is always to make it that there is a big story. I mean, nobody wants you to go to a festival and report, eh, not much happened. It wasn't terribly interesting. Like, it, as a sports writer, if you're covering a baseball game, every baseball game has to be fascinating. As a film critic, if you're going to a festival, you damn well better find something interesting about that festival. And that's just kind of part and parcel with the job. And... I think the temptation sometimes sways us to create greater dramas than in fact there are to narrativize our festival experience into something a little more than walking around with wet socks for <laughs> six days and sitting through four films a day 
that we don't feel particularly passionate about and maybe a couple that we do and a couple that we absolutely detest. Um, but that's not a very sexy story to tell. I mean, speaking of temptations and the critics conundrum, a big one for me, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I'm immensely curious about how people conceptualize these ideas that become these movies. And so I love going to the Q and A's for that reason, but I do have to limit myself in that way. I primarily write features more so than reviews. And so I find those Q and A's to be immensely helpful for context, but I totally agree that if you're reviewing something, you have to see it within the context in which it's presented. And then you probably have to step out of the theater. Otherwise there, you know, you're going to have some conflicts there. Definitely. I mean, I'm all for having as much background information as you can. It's just, you know, what you how you end up dealing with it and, and integrating it. I just, a lot of people just end up parroting the, the lines that, yeah. that, that they're given um, as, as if... Because time you know, isn't there to do otherwise. Yeah, well, I, mean, I mean... Carving out the mental space to, to be nuanced um, at a festival is, is quite difficult. Well, also carving out the mental space to see four or five movies a day, like that's something that... At my first Sundance, I I saw a documentary. I, I think it was the, the one about um, Kurt Cobain, the Brett Morgan one. And seeing that in a theater where it was turned up to 11 <laughs> and I had three more movies to see that day, I just, I felt pretty drained afterwards. And I mean, something that I always forget is you never know how a film is going to affect you. Um, so when, when you schedule all of this, you're doing it in the name of convenience and because you have to be talking to people, filing, running around, maybe going to a party and taking a breath, but you never leave yourself the mental space to really breathe and process everything. I mean, you and I ran from a movie to come here, so. Well, ran, cut to the two of us loping up the hill. <laughs> yeah, I, like I Jack saw you on the, the end of Shining. Just yeah, it was. Sleep nightmare. It's a trek. <laughs> We have to maintain, we try to maintain this illusion that we're like these, you know, perfect, I don't know, per perfect minds going from one thing to the next, but one does influence the other. Uh, and, and Nick, I'll always remember at some point in a review, you just had this litany of things that might affect how you were writing the review that people don't always pass up to, like, you know, among them, just whether you'd eaten. You know? No, no. I mean, <laughs> the fact of the matter is I've probably written off dozens of films because I was hungover and had eaten a cliff bar in the last 48 hours. And then I saw something that slightly displeased me in the movie, which then gave me total permission to shut my brain off. Yeah, it's it's very honest for us to air that. Although that we're such great people, we're really. such great people. <laughs> it's worth kind of pointing out as well that there's. I, I really, I really kind of. I never want to be the guy who complains about going to a film festival to watch films because I think you can really, almost un unwittingly, sometimes stumble into really crass territory when you're like, "Oh my god, I saw three films today." Well, it's uh, mm. that's that's it was when just terrible. That's when you've reached the like uh, when uh, when a rock star starts writing about how hard it is to be famous phase. <laughs> like pack it the, in. The touring album. Pack it in, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say we're exactly like rock stars <laughs> in almost every respect that I can think of. You you're giving away too much. These are, these are, <laughs> people well, you know, people find out, you know. The, the millions that we spend. Um, so, well, I guess we're almost sort of running toward the end of, of era. Have we overlooked any films that, that people want to give a voice to? I really like The Big Sick. The Big Sick, yeah. 
big sick. Tell I knew the big absolutely sick. nothing about it coming in, um, other than that it starred uh, Kumail Nanjani, who is maybe familiar. He's been a, a face on kind of comedy programs for many years. I think he's in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very taken. It's based on a, his, his life story as a, a Pakistani-American dealing with the pressures put on him culturally but by his parents and his own kind of flagging comedy career. And it, it's kind of long and, and languid and it kind of goes into James L. Brooks territory, I think. I, I was thinking of, of broadcast news at, at times. Again, the way the characters were all very, very fleshed out. And I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's a first time director. I, I should double check that, but his no, control. He's, uh, he's done the some Baxter, uh, Michael Showalter. Okay. He's, he's been around for some time in various comedy troops. Because the control of, of tone from, from comedy to, to tragedy and, and, and back. Um, I thought it was very well handled and it was a really nice surprise. It was the first film I saw here um, and I think it will go on to do pretty pretty good things. If if nothing else, I haven't seen the film, but I have enjoyed people telling me over the last couple of days, hearing the phrase, Ray Romano's great. Yes, <laughs> and he is great. <laughs> it's not something I ever expected to hear on the festival circuit. <laughs> I got a real shock when he popped up. <laughs> and, and he, he, he plays um, the, the lead's partner's father opposite Holly Hunter which is maybe why I was thinking of broadcast news mm. she doesn't do comedy too often and she obviously there's, there's a range of emotions here it's not straight comedy but she's very funny and it's always good to see Holly Hunter with a significant role I yeah for, unfortunately I can only think of films that I, I also didn't love I didn't love uh, but I mean I saw a thriller that that was diverting the Berlin syndrome which was a confinement thriller and Basically, a, a kind of Euro Euro trip backpackers nightmare. You know, you meet you meet a guy on the sidewalk. He has a, a funny German accent, and then before you know it, he's locked you in his apartment. <laughs> so, but uh, it, you know, as as far as those go, it, uh, as far as that sort of film goes, <laughs> and, you know, there are hundreds of those. Um, I, I thought it was it was very entertaining by Kate Shortland. And it did Somersault, so it was kind of interesting to see um, the handling of this film. I'll express guarded enthusiasm for uh, an Australian movie, Killing Grounds, by a guy called Damien Powers, which I think it has a lot of tricks up its sleeve. That sleeve gets exhausted uh, by what we used to call the last reel, but it does some very interesting things with sort of reshuffling the timeline. It's very very clinical in tone and not something that i can really you know sing the sing a melic ode to but seeing what it does with very limited resources and seeing the way that it uh manages to freshen up a fairly fetid premise that is uh, camper is being menaced by uh, Aussie rednecks. I was, it, it definitely uh, has some poise to it. It's somewhat gruesome. Is that correct? I mean, if you have any morality or soul, it would probably be disturbing. Uh, are luckily, you, are I'm, you implying I do not? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm free of both of those burdens. So I just watched it with a, with a thin smile on my face. Clear as a blue sky. <laughs> so glad to be sitting next to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
All right. Well, I think that that sort of brings us uh, to a terrifying end. Um, but uh, before we totally conclude, no, uh, since no, we're no, no. <laughs> if we can just turn off slowly the other three mics as the uh, uh, the uh, abattoir is uh, opened. Um, the we're we're at the beginning of the festival, uh, so I, I do want to repeat that because there are obviously a lot of films that you might hear about that we haven't haven't seen, so we can't speculate. Um, uh, but if you know if you want to go around maybe and say one film that you're looking forward to seeing, um, we can do that. I hope I get to see Kusa mm. Flying Lotus's mm. directorial debut, which unfortunately missed out on last night. I'm very keen to see casting Jean Benet. There's been so much about John Benet Ramsey. I can't believe people are still talking about this 20 something years later, but the kind of angle that Kitty Green seems to have taken with it is pretty fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I'm very chuffed for Eliza Hitman's Beach Rats because uh, I'm just a pathetic homer for New York independent filmmakers. <laughs> Nobody else gets the time of day for me. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm looking forward to too many to, to count, but I guess Alex Ross Perry's film I'm mm. quite curious about. Um, so that brings us to the end of our film comment podcast at Sundance at the Kickstarter house. So thank you to all of our wonderful contributors here and to our wonderful audience. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>